0: Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Brian. I'm Skip, and today we are thrilled to have Alexander Avinia with us.
1: Professor Avenia is Associate Professor of Latin American History in the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies at Arizona State University. His book, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas in the Cold War Mexican Countryside, was awarded the Maria Elena Martinez Book Prize in Mexican History for 2015 by the Conference on Latin American History. His current research project explores the links between the political economy of narcotics, drug wars, and state violence in the 1960s and 1970s Mexico.
0: And thank you so much for joining us, Professor oh, Vigna. Thank you guys for having me. No, oh, of course. Um, to get started, we'd like to ask our guests to talk about an inflection point, a place where they had to pivot or adjust in their career or personal lives. Can you share a moment with us?
2: Sure. Um, so I went to, as an undergraduate, I went to St. Mary's College of California in Northern California, and I went there to play soccer. Um, so I got, the, I got the chance, the amazing opportunity to play uh, Division I uh, college soccer. Uh, my dream was to play professionally at some level, right? Um, that, that's the whole goal. The the school stuff is like when my parents were pushing and, and you know, my parents are un, were undocumented migrants from Mexico with little, they enjoyed very little formal schooling, so they always made it a big deal that my siblings and I got the best education possible. But I wanted to play soccer, right? So, but by my last senior year, by my senior year, it became apparent that I wasn't gonna have a future as a professional <laughs> soccer player. I wasn't as good as I thought, and, Thanks to the amazing mentorship that I received um, from professors, uh, in particular, Dr. Mirna Santiago, um, a historian of, of Mexico and Latin American history. Uh, you know, the, My entire time there, she was pushing this idea of, you can go to grad school, you can go to grad school, you should think about it, and I was always putting it away. No, 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 I'm going to go play in the MLS, it's going to be fine. Uh, but by my senior year, I, I realized that I, I had to, to seriously, junior senior year, I had to seriously consider that, that this whole soccer thing wasn't gonna play out. And it didn't. And I'm really glad that at very specific moments of my college career, I had the, these mentors who were there to, to provide alternatives for me and to see, to see and appreciate that I, I had the, the potential to do something else and they, they were able to cultivate that. And I will always be grateful for, for Dr. Santiago and, and, and her uh, constant, patient, subtle ways of pushing me away from sports and to think about history as, as a career, as, a, as an academic discipline. And by my last year is when um, I decided that, yes, my soccer dream was going to be over and
1: I was going to do this Ph.D. in history thing. So what in particular drew you to history as you know, a major even to pursue as an undergrad? I know, you know obviously, you had interests uh, with athletics, but what kind of drew you in, uh, on the academic side? It took me a while to get
2: to history. I mean, I had always enjoyed history. Um, I, I've always been a nerd in terms of reading. Um, uh, I lived in Mexico for two years, so my parents took me back to Mexico when I was five. We didn't come back until I was about seven. So when I got thrown into the US school system, I didn't know English, right? So it took me three, four months to earn, learn English. And once I did, I couldn't stop reading. So I've always loved reading, um, but I went through several majors and it was really uh, mentors like Dr. Santiago and others at my, at my university who, who started to, to show me what a career in history would look like. Um, my parents didn't go to college. I didn't know that you could get a PhD in history. Um, so it was through, it was through the mentorship of, of other of professors who had similar life experiences to myself that I started to believe that my interest and passion in history could actually lead to a career. I loved writing, so I, at some point I was going to be an English major um, and, and teach at, at the high school level. I always thought I was going to teach. I did feel that vocation that I wanted to teach, um, but uh, through again through this mentorship and through this uh, the guidance that I received in, at, at the university level. Um, you know, I could see that I could have a career in history as a researcher, not just in teaching it, but also researching and producing original historical uh, research and narratives that I could share with with Scott uh, College students.
0: And that that sounds great. Um, but what about specifically history? Ended up focusing you on Mexican and Latin American history. Um, was it your upbringing? Was it your cultural past? What was it? Um, I know you've in the past said that you've been drawn to Guerrero yeah. by your father, who talked about him about, about the area so much. So yeah. if you could expand on that a little bit.
2: Yeah, no, definitely I. The history part also comes from uh, my maternal grandfather who who was a campesino. He was a peasant. He was a sharecropper for all his life. He died illiterate. He never learned how to read, but he was a great storyteller. And he transmitted that storytelling ability both in content and form to my mother. And I grew up listening to these these fabulous histories of Mexico from two parents who had very little formal schooling, right? So, And I always viewed, we always, in my household, always viewed history as a way to, uh, as directly connected to our identity. right? As, particularly as a member of a migrant family living in the United States, history, uh, religion, culture was seen as a way to protect us in, a, in what was perceived to be a foreign land that at, sometimes, at times can be very hostile toward us. Um, so history was a, like a, a refuge almost, a way where we could cultivate our identity in a, in a protective way. So the Mexico, I focus on Mexico because of my family. Um, I didn't do Mexican American history, I didn't do Chicano history. Uh, for a variety of different reasons, but I I chose Mexican history because of my family, and it's a very personal thing to
1: me. So your fascination with with kind of narrative, I think, really plays out in your work a lot. Um, You've said uh, revolutions and revolutionary politics, for example, are deeply personal, and you um, have that kind of focus on the personal and and the kind of narrative. I'm I'm just curious about... um, your own personal engagement with your research as a historian I know you've talked about um, your past and your, and your context, but you can, can you talk a little bit about how you own your own interactions as you're doing these research with these stories that you're reading?
2: Yeah, that's, a, that's a really good question. Um, the histories that I'm researching, especially these two revolutionary movements that I cover in my first book, right? The fact that they weren't successful has contributed to them being under research or not researched at all. That and the fact that these two movements actually experienced not just a physical counterinsurgency at the hands of the Mexican state, but they also suffered a war of memory in which the Mexican state tried to eradicate physically and in terms of memory that they even existed. Right. So I'm fascinated with this idea of trying to un- using archaeology as a metaphor, right, to uncover and unearth these histories that were uh, figuratively and literally buried by by an oppressive Mexican state during the 1960s and the 70s. The, the struggle is how to come up with a narrative form that captures a revolutionary movement that did not succeed, um, that uh, a movement that's defined by failure, not success. Um, and it, historical narrative has a real issue with that. Uh, historical narratives still, to this day, can suffer from a bit of positivism, can suffer from a romantic-style narrative that is one thing after another, and, and if one concrete thing after another. And sometimes there's very little room for hopes, for dreams, for utopian desires, for longings, particularly those that have been defeated and crushed politically and militarily. Um, so for me, thinking about narrative actually is an entrance point to the histories that I'm researching. Thinking about narrative allows me to think about how I'm gonna get at these histories to begin with as a researcher, and, and thinking about um, using more unorthodox structures of narrative to get at these histories that, that have been uh, buried or, or silenced or marginalized for so long.
0: And so I know that you briefly mentioned um, about your first book, Specters of Revolution, Peasant Guerrillas and Cold War, Mexican Countryside. I know some of our listeners may not not be super familiar with the two failed revolutions that you're talking about. So if you could kind of go into it and maybe talk about your findings a little bit and why failure was so important in defining um, the Mexican state as it is today.
2: Um, Sure. So in this book, I tried to cover the two short-lived guerrilla movements that emerged in the state of guerrero during the 1960s and 70s both in- interestingly enough were led by school teachers rural school teachers um Vázquez vasquez and and lucio cabanas lucio cabanas actually emerged from a rural teacher training school called ayotinapa which has been um, because of the disappearance of 43 ayotinapa students in 2014 mm-hmm. has been in the news more um, these two movements developed as i show in the book after repeated efforts of see- of trying to get some sort of reform from the Mexican government uh, through peaceful, legalistic, constitutional ways. And at each turn, they te- they were repressed, usually violently, by either state police, by the Mexican military, or they suffered everyday forms of violence at the hands of local political bosses. So by the late 1960s, you have um, veterans of social movements that had been, uh, peaceful social movements that had been repressed, that were being persecuted. They arrived at decisions that The only way that they were going to get radical meaningful reform and change in mexico was to wage armed struggle and that's how we get at these two different guerrilla groups um, led by school teachers Uh, the more consequential the two movements the party of the poor was led by lucio cabanas they ended up developing a, a guerrilla force of up to maybe 300 fighters they had the support of dozens of rural communities in coastal guerrero and it really took up to a third of the mexican army to be sent into the state to crush them militarily Um, in the mid-1970s. And the way that this was accomplished was not necessarily by attacking the guerrilla fighters themselves, but by going after the civilian base of support for the group, right? So it it, it resulted in something that in Mexico is referred to as the Dirty War, where the Mexican military, political police, and state police tortured, raped, and disappeared people throughout the 1970s. Um, Lucio Cabañas himself died in battle on December 2nd, 1974, and after he was killed, the Mexican military buried him in a clandestine grave and his body was lost and it wasn't recovered until the early 2000s. And it took like a series of, of DNA tests from his family members. So in a way, Lucio, uh, what happens to Lucio's body after he dies in battle against the Mexican military is a metaphor for this broader history. Right? The Mexican state quite literally tried to bury this, this history mm-hmm. and, 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 to, and to crush it and to bury it in hope that it's going to go away. It didn't because people in the area always remembered Lucio Calañas. And in the 1990s, we have a new cycle of guerrilla struggles in, in Guerrero that's quite explicitly drawing on this traditional, le- this guerrilla legacy of the 1970s. And to this day, we have guerrilla movements in Guerrero.
1: Right. Right. And I think I think history, the subject of history, can sometimes be maligned as you know as, as the past and maybe not as applicable. But I think. Your work, um, you, you've said yourself um, that, that the Cold war, Cold war histories that you're writing about are key to understanding the contemporary Mexican war on drugs, as you've kind of just mentioned. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how uh, these movements in the 60s and 70s, you know, just elaborate a little more on how they directly tie into present day systems economically um, and other and otherwise?
2: Sure. So my current research um, focuses on the same time period, and it's based on a lot of the research that I did for the first book. But they involve uh, themes and topics that I couldn't integrate into the narrative of these two the histories of the two guerrilla movements. Um, when I was researching this time period, I kept coming across references to drugs to anti-narcotics operations, and I figured it was something um, completely separate from the anti-guerrilla struggle that the Mexican state was was launching. But what I ended up finding out later on, and what I'm working on now, is that Mexico has its first modern war on drugs um, during the 1970s and the way that this unfolds in Guerrero is it serves as cover for the extermination of these two guerrilla movements. So, um, officially, these guerrilla movements didn't exist. What you had was a struggle against bandits, you had a struggle against cattle thieves, and you had a struggle against narco- narcos. Right? Um, so the, the, the narrative of a war on drugs was used to, to suffocate and to exterminate armed social movements in the state of Guerrero. Um, some of the... Military counterinsurgency experts that were involved in getting in destroying these guerrilla movements um, By the late 1970s and early 80s will become narco traffickers themselves, right? So the, it to me. It's this this uh, I'm still trying to wrap my mind around it. you have people who were trained at US military academies Mexican military officials who got specialized training in the US who go on to exterminate these guerrilla movements and what they do afterwards is to apparently become involved in a burgeoning political economy of narcotics. Because even though this war on drugs, as I see it, is a, is a discursive and political cover for a war against poor people, there is actually a massive, massively increasing level of narcotics production in Mexico uh, responding primarily to US demand. Um, but when the, people, when the military officials are actually sent into Guerrero to fight, they're not fighting the narcos, they're not fighting the growers, they're not fighting the, the traffickers, uh, they're fighting the, uh, uh, the guerrillas. There's there's one quote that a, a Mexican scholar got from interviewing somebody who had participated in the, in the Dirty War in the 1970s, in which he says um, something to the extent of, "Look, with the marijuana growers, we had we had no beef. Uh, we had no beef with the marijuana growers, but with the guerrilla, we had to fuck them up." And to, that that one quote says so much to me, right? So I'm trying to integrate this this history of state terror and violence in the 1970s. Into a a, a study of, uh, of of the war on drugs in Mexico that begins in the 1970s, and the link to that is is what's going on today in Mexico. Since 2006, we've had what, like 300,000 homicides, 40,000 disappearances, um, at the same. And there's been also, and and this gets used as a cover to to go after social movements, but we don't hear about that as much in the United States.
0: Um, and although a lot of these drug problems obviously come from the nation itself, from like people within, a lot of people would point to U.S. intervention being the kickstarter to a lot of these narco like, narcotraficantes getting traction in these countries, getting funded by uh, CIA, FBI movements, covertly, obviously, so nobody could find out. Um, and even now, you can see America intervening in places like Venezuela or um, other Latin American countries. So could you speak a little bit to the U.S.'s involvement in the the growth and the strength of the narcotraficantes that are present in Mexico today.
2: Yeah, no, that's, that's a huge, qu- important question. Um, so I think anti-drug policy or U.S. drug policy is is an, an arm of the broader U.S. imperial approach to to, to Latin America, right? So, um, the to, to 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 cite one clear example, right? So if you watch the latest season of, of Narcos, right? Yeah. So Narcos is based in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Right, so it covers this this incident in the mid 1980s when Kiki Camarena, this DEA agent who was undercover in Mexico, gets picked up by the Guadalajara cartel and he's tortured to death. Right, what what uh, an aspect that's not covered by the narco story uh, uh, is the fact that, or the possibility that one of the reasons why Kiki Camarena was actually kidnapped, tortured, and killed was because he had stumbled across the fact that the Guadalajara cartel was allowing the CIA to use some of its ranches in Veracruz to train contra fighters who would then be sent back to Nicaragua to fight against the Sandinistas. This is according to, um, I think the, the person who most articulated this theory was a guy who was a CIA asset living in Mexico, working for the Guadalajara cartel as their like technolo- technology assistant, radio technician. So, Kika so Marena, the standard narrative is that he was killed and tortured because he was on the trail of Felix Arellano and the Guadalajara cartel and he was, he was picking up information about what they were doing. This alternative theory is that he had stumbled across the Guadalajara cartel's involvement with the Contras and with US efforts to undermine and to smother a, a popular revolutionary government in Nicaragua. Another way that the US government um, uses drug policy more recently um, and its relationship to, to narcotraficantes in Mexico, right? Is, and this is, thanks to WikiLeaks, we got some of these documents in the 2000s, is that the CIA was favoring certain drug, tra- drug cartels in Mexico. I mean, uh, their ideal situation is to have one big drug cartel, right, which would minimize the violence and would control the trade. Um, and it seems like both the Mexican government and the CIA in 2005, 6, and 7 were favoring the Sinaloa cartel against the CETA's. And were providing some sort of assistance uh, to help the Sinaloa cartel in their in their fight against the Cephas, right. So there's some very and then we have you know the the the, uh, the other part of this that most that many people have heard about is how um, you had Nicaraguan, uh, you know, well you had the, the trafficking of, of of cocaine into United States and the West Coast of the United States in the 1980s, to use the profits derived from that trade to fund the contras in Nicaragua, right? So, um, actually, drugs have had a, a central, have been a central component to, to U.S. imperial policies, and not just in, in the Americas, right? Mexican Mexican heroin dominated the U.S. market until about the late '70s, early '80s. One of the reasons why Mexican dominance of the market fell off is because something happened in Afghanistan in 1979, right? Which was the U.S. the Soviet Union invaded. And the U.S. started supporting Mujahideen and essentially turned the Afghan-Pakistani borderland into a wild ha- opium poppy producing zone, right? And you have this weird interaction and mixing of Afghani opium poppy producers, Pakistani drug traffickers, and CIA gun runners, and missile runners all working together to destabilize the Soviet Union. And you see where that got us. Yeah. So Afghanistan was producing, during the 70s, maybe 100 tons annually of, of her- opium poppies that turn into heroin. By 1991, it was producing more than 2,000 tons a year. So what explains that? Well, U.S. efforts to destabilize the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan during the 1980s.
1: Do you see any ironies then going off that with uh, the United States involvement with um, the, the drug trade and all, all over the world? And then now rhetoric uh, that's reappeared, but as has appeared before about, uh, you know, a barrier on the border, building, building a wall. What do, you, what do you think about that?
2: I mean, it's just uh, it's insulting. <laughs> I
1: mean, it's
2: it, I see why someone like Donald Trump uses this this topic politically, right? Because it is just a political ploy. It's something that his base demands, and it's something that his, his base wants to hear. But what's driving this is American cons- consumption of drugs, right? and in, in the more recent case, um, with this opioid ad- addiction, what, what drove that was not me- you know was not were not Mexican drug trafficking organizations who were pushing the drugs in the street. What created a market for opioids and what created a market of addicts who were seeking opioids was, was Purdue Pharmaceutical, where the guy, the company, the family that invented oxycodone, right? So when people ask me, you know, is, is Mexico a narco state? I'm like, no, Mexico is not a narco state, but the U.S. is a narco state. It's just legal narcos, right? It's Purdue, uh, Purdue Pharmaceutical is a Sacker family that primed millions of people to be opioid addicts. Um, Once the U.S. government stepped in and restricted access to oxycodone, you had millions of people who needed their fix, and drug trafficking organizations moved in. Um, So now to step back and say we're going to build a wall to protect the innocent American consumer against the evil Mexican drug traffickers is, 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 is a cynical political ploy that's drawing, obviously, on racist and white supremacist characterizations to fulfill certain political functions and demands, not based in any sort of reality.
1: So unfortunately, we only have time for one more question, Um, but it's a question that we ask all of our guests. um, And it's, what is your personal definition of success? And what advice would you give to students or any listeners of this podcast in defining success for themselves? That's a really difficult question.
2: (laughs) How to define success. Um, The way I define success is I am able to engage. I have a career and I'm able to do work that allows me to think beyond myself, right? What I would tell people in terms of, what I would tell students, right, as they're in college or in high school, trying to think about what to do with the future, I would really suggest that students think about doing things that lead them to think about more than just themselves, right? And I think maybe, maybe because we live in, in this particular hell world that we live in now that perhaps encourages us to think about um, urges us to think about beyond ourselves, right? I think success, I would define success as engaging in the type of political and social activities that leads to change beyond ourselves. And I think there's an urgency to this now, right? Whether it's climate change, whether it's the whole border debate, whether it's what's happening to migrants at the border now, what has been happening to the migrant, to migrants since the 1990s, right? We have almost 10,000 people who have died trying to cross the, the, the Arizona-Mexico desert. There's an urgency to this and, and we have to act and I would ur- success to me then would be to translate that urgency into action. And that action requires us to think of more than just about ourselves, but to think about broader social issues and political issues.
0: And on such a great note, unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you, Professor Avinia, um, for joining us. And all our n- to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.